Today we're reading from Mark chapter 12, so let's go to the Word and read it together, and then we'll discuss it. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent his servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They uh, came to him and said, Teacher, don't you know that a man of integrity, you aren't swayed by men, because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance to the way of the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without having uh, leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, 
How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more money in the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. This is a remarkable passage, and as we are getting closer and closer to uh, Jesus' uh, execution and resurrection here in Mark, we see that he's teaching his disciples one last set of very important parables. The very first one is a direct reference to the Jewish people. The parable of the tenants speaks of a man who planted a vineyard, and this is a reference to God the Father. And the tenants are the Jewish people or the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, his chosen people who have been chosen to take care of what God has entrusted to them. Now you can see through reading this parable what happens. Although the Father, God, has entrusted uh, the Jewish nation or Israel to take care of what God has uh, you know, given to them on this earth, they have treated the father very shamefully. And every time the father sent someone to collect, in this case, these would be the prophets or the priests uh, or the people who have come uh, to warn Israel of their sin and of their error and to turn from their ways, the nation of Israel treated those people, those prophets, very badly. Some of them they uh, beat, some of them they imprisoned, and some they killed. And last of all, the father, the owner of the vineyard, had one person left to send, and that was his son. Now, this is a direct reference to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Again, taking a step back, who was the Messiah for the people of Israel in the first century? He was a military ruler. He was a human king, a descendant of David, and that is the theme for this whole chapter. Well, of course, when you put this parable in this perspective, the son of the vineyard owner is no longer just a human being. He is a very special part of who the vineyard owner is. In this case, it is God's direct son. And that elevates the Messiah above who the people of Israel would have thought or assumed him to be. Now, when the parable speaks of the uh, vineyard owner giving that vineyard away to strangers, that is a direct reference to saying, God is going to take what has been promised to the people of Israel and give it to the Gentiles, which would be uh, most of us probably listening to this, uh, people who are not Jewish, who have been now engrafted into the covenant promises that were originally promised to the Jewish people. And he's going to do that because the people who were first entrusted to take care of God's inheritance, that is his word, uh, his land, uh, and the covenant promises, 
failed in that regard. They failed to listen to the people that the Father was sending to them um, to correct their ways. Now, of course, of course, if you are a Jew of the first century listening to this, you would be deeply disturbed by this. You would be very angry about this. And you can see here how uh, the author of Mark says that's exactly what happened. They, they, meaning the teachers of the law, the, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders, tried to find a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against him. Listen, um, in the first century in Judea, um, they want to arrest him simply on the charge of saying something they don't like. And certainly we can see parallels now to our modern day that no longer is the law about right and wrong. It's about, did you say something I don't like or agree with? Well, then I'm going to punish you for that. And they're trying to actually arrest him simply for saying something they did not like. But you can see here, it's still a bit early in the week, the Passover week, and they still don't have uh, a good enough leverage to be able to grab Jesus and throw him into prison or kill him yet because they're still afraid of the crowds. That will change. You can see how the chapter 12 here, as we continue, continues to be either attacks of the religious leaders against Jesus or vice versa. The next passage is is the same tone, paying taxes to Caesar. Now, let's be clear here. Um, uh, Taxes were paid in the first century. They are paid today in the 21st century. The government, the people who run uh, the region here, in this case, the Roman Empire, would expect the people to pay them taxes. Uh, It was no different than today. And so what the Pharisees and the Herodians, in this case Herodians, would be Jews who were um, more uh, more Greek uh, or more liberal, who were not as orthodox as the Pharisees, right, in their beliefs. So um, maybe today you would consider an evangelical to be more of someone like a Pharisee, someone who is very deeply devoted to their religion. The Herodians would be Jews, who were not very religious. Um, And so they sided with more of the secular government, um, that is King Herod, who ruled their area. And they're trying to catch Jesus in his words. Here you can see they're not able to arrest Jesus outright. So what they're trying to do is to trick him in public so that Jesus will say something that will turn the crowds against him. But once again, Jesus turns the words of the Pharisees against the Pharisees. And they continue to, they, it continues to backfire every time the religious leaders try and catch Jesus in some kind of statement. It ends up backfiring and making the religious leaders look even worse. So you'd think they'd learn their lesson, but they continue to press him because they're desperate. Here, they're trying to catch Jesus on the the fact of paying taxes. Of course, this was a big deal then, as it is now. And this is what the, the religious leaders are trying to do. If they can get Jesus to say, yes, you should pay taxes, well, the crowd would see that as, well, you care more about giving money to the government than you do giving it to God. And if Jesus says, well, I think you should give your money to God and not Caesar, that's treason. And that's an excellent way for the religious leaders of the period to say, look, this guy is saying we shouldn't pay taxes to Rome, and the Romans would not like that. Well, once again, Jesus turns the tables and he gives them an answer that they were not expecting. Here, it is a purely logical answer. He says, fine, I'll answer you. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. (coughs) Now, quick side note, a denarius here would be the coinage 
used in Israel in the first century that would be authorized by the Roman Empire. Remember, the government who issues coins for money stamps their name on it so you know that that is Roman money. In this case, Caesar would be a face that would actually be stamped onto a coin, just like today if you live in the United States, the presidents of the United States uh, would be stamped, on, the faces of those would be stamped on the coin, meaning that money belongs to the government of the United States. <coughs> in this case, it would be a Roman coin, and that coin belongs to Rome. Jesus is doing two things here very effectively. The first is he's showing, through logic, someone has a coin on them. One of the religious leaders who just put this question to him has a denarius on him. He's like, well, show me a coin. Well, one of those Pharisees reached into his pocket and pulled it out and said, here, here it is. Now, the first piece of logic is whose face is on that coin? <clears throat> of course, it's Caesar, the leader of the Roman Empire. And Jesus makes a very clear, logical argument that you can't really argue against. Well, that's the face of the Roman ruler, so that coin belongs to Rome, period. There's no way you could argue that. But I think you should think secondarily here about what just happened. A religious leader who's trying to catch Jesus and probably has said to the crowds before, maybe not publicly, we shouldn't be paying our, our money to Caesar, we should be giving it to God, he has just proven that he has a coin in his pocket that belongs to Rome. That Pharisee has just proven that he agrees with the Roman Empire and giving his money to Rome. And I think that is a, a beautifully delicious moment in which Jesus essentially catches the Pharisees in their own hypocrisy. The next piece here is about the marriage at the resurrection. And because it talks about the Sadducees, it's worth taking a brief step back to talk about the different kinds of religious groups who were in Israel in the first century. We've talked the most about the Pharisees. Again, this was a very orthodox group. They believed in a resurrection of the dead. They believed in spirits, in angels, and demons. Uh, they had, uh, they read the scriptures uh, fervently. They believed that the canon or official scriptures of their Bible consisted of uh, largely all of the books of the Old Testament that we have today. And uh, that would include both the law, the prophets, and the writings, all three sections. They met together in their homes. They had fellowship. They sung hymns. In fact, uh, much of the way that the Pharisees acted in the first century was the model for how the church began and their church practices. The second group that's important, and, and they're mentioned here, are the Sadducees. The Sadducees, in contrast to the Pharisees, were not orthodox. They were not highly religious. Uh, this was a largely secular group of men, the aristocracy. They were rich. They were the landowners. They were the wealthy, um, <laughs> the wealthy owners who owned land, and they were the landlords. They were in power, and they tried to keep their power. They were a very small group. They were largely centered in Jerusalem and nowhere else in Israel. And their main focus in life was to retain their religious power. So because they were liberal in their approaches and in their words and thinking, uh, they were able to convince Rome that they should be the ones who ruled in Jerusalem as religious leaders. And so most of the uh, Sanhedrin and the high priests were Sadducees, not Pharisees. 
Now the Sadducees' beliefs themselves, they rejected the uh, prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. So they essentially only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, that is the law, the books of Moses, as legitimate uh, canon for their beliefs. So they rejected all of the other prophets and writings um, uh, that we would say are truly the word of God from the Old Testament. They also rejected uh, the resurrection of the dead. They rejected the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. And they thought when you died, you died, you went to the ground, and that was it. The third group, which is not mentioned in the New Testament, but was in fact a very important group in um, the first century BC through the first century AD, were the Essenes. This was a very orthodox, almost monk-like group of people who lived in the desert. They tried to separate themselves from Jewish culture because they believed that the Jewish nation was becoming liberal and corrupt. And certainly if you uh, know now what the Sadducees were saying, you would probably believe that. And so they separated themselves into the desert to focus on God, to focus on a very ascetic or monastic lifestyle of prayer, of reading the scriptures, of teaching their children the truth about God. These are the people who created the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Sadducees and the Essenes both disappear from history after the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman Empire. The Pharisees continued on for many hundreds of years. Now let's go back to the Sadducees in this statement. Given what I just told you, the Sadducees reject the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, and they reject the concept of resurrection, it is the height of hypocrisy that they would attack Jesus with this question about what happens to people who are married after they rise from the dead, because of course they didn't really believe that. Now Jesus, of course, knowing their error and their hypocrisy, hits them right back again. And he says, you're in error for two reasons. One, when the dead rise, they won't be like they are today. And this is a very you know, nice glimpse into the future for us. As we rise from the dead and are given new bodies at the resurrection, things won't be exactly the same as they are today. Uh, men and women will not marry like they do. Uh, and uh, they will be more like angels in heaven, these spiritual-like beings. <clears throat> the second thing that Jesus does is very clever. He uses the words of the book of Moses, right, the law, the actual books of the Old Testament the Sadducees do believe in, and hits them with that and says, it's the manner in which uh, God talks in the Old Testament that proves that uh, the dead is not the final story for people. I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, as if they are still alive. He talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense as if they still exist, and thus says to them, that proves to you, using your own books of the Bible, that the dead will rise again, and they will live, and the dead uh, death is not a final thing. The next section here again, Time after time, religious leaders are, this is a full-on assault here against Jesus. They're trying to get him to trick him into saying something that uh, he will essentially dig his own grave, and they continue to fail. Next is the greatest commandment. This was actually quite a huge debate in the first century, because the Jewish people were very concerned with, of course, their outward practice of the law, their ritual, their outward appearance of following 
those laws and which one, of course, was the most important would tell you who was the most religious or the most righteous in their society. <clears throat> so they were kept trying to argue amongst themselves. Well, um, many people actually said that um, honoring your father and mother was the most important commandment. Many Jews actually believed that. That might surprise some of you listening to this. Uh, others, of course, would have said, uh, you know, um, to put your God first and have no other gods before you and so on and so on. And so they're trying to put this to Jesus and Jesus makes a very clear statement here. Uh, he's saying, no, the Lord your God is one. That's the Shema that says that uh, there are not many gods, but there is one God that we say is expressed in three ways, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. What Jesus is saying here is, it is not the all of the laws that you're trying to keep externally to show on the outside that somehow you're more religious than the next person. He's directly attacking that, that very root concept, that ritual is somehow the way that you show how religious you are. What Jesus is actually saying is it's not the ritual at all. It's not the outward appearance. It's the inward, uh, inner state of your heart, your morality, your heart, your love for God that shows just how important uh, or how righteous you really are. And this, of course, would again be a direct um, you know, attack on the Pharisees' belief that it's more about how you show that you're religious than how you really are on the inside. <clears throat> The next piece here, whose son is the Christ, again gets at this idea of this misconception of who the Jews thought the Messiah was in the first century. Jesus is, is continuing to hit home that he, being the Messiah, is not just a human being who is descended from David and thus some kind of king, a human king, that's going to, you know, again, take over in a military coup and kick the Romans out and reestablish the throne in, in Israel in the first century. <clears throat> He makes this direct reference to David, who wrote the Psalms, and uh, where this passage comes from. Uh, David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. How can he be his son? Jesus is trying to say, If David calls the Messiah his Lord, he couldn't be his son, or his grandson, or his great-grandson, or, or so on and so forth. He's trying to say again, if you are technical, and this is, <laughs> this is again to the, law, the lawyers and the Pharisees who are very technical in their law, this would have hit very close to home. He's saying if you are technical about it, there's no way David could be referring to a human descendant of his here by calling him Lord. The only way you can interpret that as a lawyer of the law, a Pharisee, is to say David must mean someone else, someone who is higher than David. And the only one who could be higher than a human David is a godly David. And that is the Son of God himself. Now, we end this here with the widow's offering. And a very great statement again. A final kind of you know shot at the Pharisees who think that showing how important they are in public made them more religious. You know, <clears throat> to give you an idea of the temple here. Uh, this is the, the Jewish temple here, or Herod's temple. The outer court or the court of women would have the money jars in which people would come. And for Passover week, there would be a million pilgrims in town all trying to give their money to the temple uh, for their, their religious donations. Those jars set outside in the, in the women's court uh, would be filling with money day after day. 
And what the uh, you know so-called religious people would do is they would come with their bags full of money, and they would sit there and they would clank their coins into these giant collection jars and make this huge racket and call a huge amount of attention to themselves. And they would stand there in their beautiful robes and be like, "Look at me!" And slowly, you know, over several minutes, clank, 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 keep pouring their coins into these jars and calling a huge amount of attention to themselves to say, "Look at how religious and wonderful I am by doing this." <clears throat> And again, Jesus is attacking them on this root issue. It is not how much money you have and how much pomp and show you're showing to others that makes you religious. It's your inner self-sacrifice of giving what you can't give that shows your heart to God and your trust of God. This widow, who again in the first century would have been marginalized, would have been oppressed, she would have been desperately poor, um, probably living day to day, Um, barely able to scrape by, is taking what little she has and giving it to God out of the love of her heart and devotion and faith. And Jesus says that is the kind of love that he is looking for in this world. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time as we look at Mark chapter 13. 